With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. This is lesson one tonight. <clears throat> If I were to do this again, I would adjust these uh, numbers a little bit, uh, but that's where we are now. Chapter 17 actually begins the sixth vision and runs from chapter 17, verse 1, through chapter 20, verse 15. So we'll be under part 7 for all of that material. This one, this uh, the first section here in uh, Revelation uh, 1 through 19.10 deals of the judgment upon Israel, upon Jerusalem. And she is identified by her character as the great harlot. Now, once we have that straight, it resolves just a whole lot of issues. Now, Last week we had a question about who was ruling Israel at the time of Ezekiel or after the um, sieging of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar and then the um, uh, captivity that, that was by Kaipel. And I think that Lana has an answer for us tonight. Can, can you all hear her? Starts with verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I'm kind of shortening this a little bit. And then in uh, chapter 24, it starts, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So this was the first uh, invasion. The Lord sent against him, sent against him Chaldeans uh, and a bunch of other people. Anyway, and he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. And also for uh, he... Um, Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. Manasseh was Jehoiakim's grandfather. Yeah, because Josiah was his son, and then Jehoiakim here was Josiah's son. And also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. The king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, 
from uh, the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And Jehoiachin was 18 when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And he did all that his father had done. At the time, uh, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar went up to Jerusalem, and the city became under siege again. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, uh, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out all the treasures from the, the palaces and the temple and uh, took them away with him. And then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile, and also the king's mother and his wives and his officials and the leading men of the land were all led away into exile. And then it goes on to say, Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, this is Jehoiachin's uncle, uh, Mataniah, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And, um, let's see, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And this is the third time. Now, in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem had camped against it, and began a sage. So the city was under the sage until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him, and uh, his army was scattered from him. They captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon, and he passed sentence on him. I guess I'm shortening this up a lot. <laughs> Anyway, they slaughtered his sons, the sons of Zedekiah, before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. And all this time, Jehoiachin was in prison. And at the end of this, uh, I don't know how many years he was in prison. I'd have to, to look that up. It's, I'm sure it's right here. Uh, he, let, he was let out of prison and given favor in the court. He was he was given clothes and food and a position at court. But it was the Zedekiah that was uh, kept in bondage, you know, because of his, his blindness and all. And then after he was captured and his eyes were put out, uh, Nebuchadnezzar made uh, a governor. I guess he was through with Basil Kings. So he made a governor in Judea, and he uh, stayed governor for quite a while after that. Oh, they had some very young kings that did mm -hmm. 18, 20 I think it was one that was, I think Josiah was like, uh, was nine or something like that when he became, yeah, second king. So that, to answer your question, yeah, there was several. 
the couple of kings that that were were there for several different invasions or sieges or captures. There were three primary invasions. Right. 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 Yeah. Jerusalem was sieged in three stages by Nebuchadnezzar as the people were brought into captivity. And I think, are you done? That's good. Huh? Well, so in Judea, that she's talking about in Second Kings, you have these kings that are there during these three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar, and then those who they take captive go into the what we know as the Babylonian captivity. While in captivity, I think when Ezekiel was particularly in Yeah, Ezekiel was He started, Nebuchadnezzar started at the top of society. We don't like that, but he did, and took them captive because he thought he could use them. They were bright, the bright people. And uh, then finally, you know, he left them the lowest people, but he didn't want to mess with them. I don't know. I think I got left. (laughs) So all three kings were doing that? Well, they were all there during a different siege. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. So during that process of uh, sieging the city, seizing the city, came in three stages, and uh, Babylon was the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the constant. And then, but Judea had a variable of three, many different kings, as she's just mentioned, then when they got into captivity, I don't think they had any kings. I think they just had, when Ezekiel was written, they had a priest, and Ezekiel was a priest. He was the access of God to the people. Who's this young man? Oh. Well, you're lucky. <laughs> I've heard rumors. I forget. Yeah, Mike Hotstetler. Mike Hotstetler? Oh, Mike? Nebuchadnezzar, when did he end up turning into a wild beast like Bill Crazy guy that he was going to? Was that at the end, towards the end of his reign? Well, that when he finally came to grips with reality, that was the end of his reign. Yeah, and uh, and then, of course, you have other kings, and, and then pretty soon you have the Medo, uh, Medo-Persian Empire, Second World Empire, took over after Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. Then you have, um, on down the line, out of that you have the third beast, which was the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. And, of course, we are all familiar with him because he was the one who scientifically designed the language that all of the New Testament is written in, except or some fragments, but he was the architect. And he developed the, the Grecian culture, and the Jews who participated in that were called, 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 
the Jews that participated in Alexander's culture were called what kind of Jews? Hellenistic. 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 That's where the word Hellenistic comes in. Well, that's your learning good stuff. Good, all right. A lot of people don't know that. Where have you been? I have missed you. What? Well, that was impending when you were here last time and you told me about it. And, you know, I hesitated. I almost called you and I thought, well... I don't know her that well. Maybe she wouldn't want me to. What? Are you sure? So you're Mike Hofstad? Hofstad. How do you spell that? H-O-S-T-E-T-L-E-R. All right. I don't know about you, but he said he could whip you. When he came in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, I've been wrestling with God a lot, so I don't know. <laughs> oh, well, you have never wrestled with Neil. <laughs> okay. So, thank you, Lana. Do you have anything else to add? I like that background. Thank we, you very much for looking that up. We really like, I really appreciate, we have some folks gone tonight that are out of town. But I really appreciate people participating with background material that they bring in. You know, I like that participation. We are question-driven, even though we have a primary theme here in this book. And this is a tough book. That's why um, we call it the class for the, what is it, the advanced, the advanced class. We do a lot of this kind of stuff. Not for everybody. So where we are then, um, Kaipo, that's, that, those are some things and a good text for you to read in Second Kings uh, to get a handle on that. Uh, you know, and, and she started with 30, chapter 23, verse 36, I believe. But through that region there, you have the background as to what was going on in Judea while Isaiah and Jeremiah are being written. While they're being written, the activity there is going on in Second Kings. The recording. Israel was already gone. Israel, as yeah, as a nation. Yes. So there were people. The ten tribes were already. Yeah. So then Ezekiel and Daniel, remember, are written while they were in captivity. So we always have to remember the time frame in which they were in, because it makes a big difference on how you look at them. So we're in chapter 17 of Revelation, and um, we're in, we've looked at verses 1 through 4, and we have more material to cover in those four verses tonight, because this is the beginning of a new part, new section, this is the beginning of the sixth vision, and this is the vision of God's judgment upon Jerusalem. Is it Revelation 
17. You all know Gina? Did you get through that all right? Good for you. Good for you. Yep. Just next time, don't get them. <laughs> yep. So in these four verses, we I, we gave you a, a little bit of an outline last week. The, the chapter one is dealing with purpose of where he's going. And so that's so often the way the scriptures do it. They identify a purpose, and then we go everywhere we want to go, and we go outside of the realm of what he says in the text he's going to do. Then we have problems. But here he identifies the purpose of Chapter, uh, verse 1 in chapter 17 as what? What's the purpose of this, of what's going on here? Who can remember from last week? This is a real brief review. Judgment. judgment. This is the judgment of the great harlot, and the great harlot is whom? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll read more about that here a little bit later. And then in, in number 2, in verse number 2, we have the condition of these people that are the subject of judgment. And that condition is what? Drunkenness. Drunk. You know, I looked that word up today curiously to find out how, how would the lexicon define the word drunk? And they use the word drunken as a response. Well, the, <laughs> the first rule of a defining of a term is what? Don't use the word itself. You cannot use the word that you're defining in the definition. That's the first literary rule of defining a term. That, that's it's just redundant. It doesn't accomplish anything. So if we're going to look at that word drunk, uh, I would suggest that it is a state of semi-unconsciousness. Well, that, and yeah, and but the result of it is, these people were drunk. It means they were in a state of unconsciousness. They had fuzzy thinking about what it is they were supposed to be upholding. They were covenant people. What's that? Not sober-minded, yeah. Fuzzy thinking, numb. And then verse three, and we're going to come back and look at some of these things. But the verse, so in verse one we have purpose. The purpose is what? Judgment. Judgment. So we need to look. Everything now from chapter seventeen through twenty fifteen is is talking about that subject, the judgment of the great harlot who sits upon many peoples, many many waters, as they did. And we have discussed that already. Then the condition of these people, because of how they had responded to God's covenant with them as a people, had become drunken. That is, they had lost their sense of regulatory life. 
passage in the Old Testament talks about kings that uh, kings that drink or become drunk, they lose their sense of judgment, good judgment. So true. So that's a good definition of what's happened to the people. Thank you. Good, good point. That's what they had lost their sense of judgment. They had departed from the covenant that God had made with them back in Deuteronomy. And now we're seeing, um, whereas in Ezekiel, and we're going to go there tonight, but Ezekiel is talking about the condition of Judah and of Jerusalem in captivity. Now the same language is used toward the Jerusalem of the New Testament and their destruction because of what they did to the Messiah and his church. All right, verse 3. Then we talk about where he went to see this and what's the place. Uh, he went to the wilderness. Okay, into a wilderness. And that's why we identify this verse as the place. He carried me away in the spirit, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later here into a wilderness. And um, you remember how we defined wilderness last week? A place without structure. A place without improvements. I, th- I, th- I had some other terms, but I, I don't remember them right now. Oh, I had them here in the notes. Uh, without order. All right, so number one is purpose. Number two is condition of the people. Verse three is the place where this is uh, going to be seen by the observer. And then number four, and that's as far as we'll get tonight, is the contrast between the woman that he saw and how the woman should have been seen. So the con- I call that the contrast. There's nothing divine about those titles. I just try to break it down into the heart, and I'm trying to give him a four-point sermon free. So where the previous chapters have dealt with the things up here, from one perspective, now we're covering the same, same events, but now we have a what? In contrast, what we've seen, where we've been before. Same events, same time frames, but now what do we see? Now, now he's dealing with the character portrait of the one who's being judged. So when he talks about the judgment, now he's going, this is going to be the development of the character portrait. And Jerusalem referred to here as the harlot. And the word harlot, of course, is a character portrait here. Um, A harlot is one who has the use of natural uses, natural and external endowments to manipulate others for her own personal advantage. Anybody want to argue that or contest that point? 
You're welcome to do so. As these folks may have not heard me say. Well, she was, uh, she was in the assembly of, of uh, the other uh, people. They were, he's talking here, he's only, Revelation only addresses the covenant people. God is not concerned about the people who are not covenant people, except with how they affect his covenant people. He wasn't concerned about Babylon. He had no covenant with Babylon. But when they took his people captive, even though it was in punishment for what his people had done, then Babylon was overcome by Cyrus, the Medo-Persian. This is probably a little bit too too brief to give you full understanding, but so we're moving on here. Um, <clears throat> so the these 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 um, this character portrait is so critical that we learn what happened to a people who should not have been here. So. We're looking at the harlot. The reason that term is used for God's people, we're going to look at it in, in Ezekiel in just a moment, that I, even under uh, while they were in Babylonian captivity, he's using the same phrase here. But in, ba- in the Babylonian captivity, they were given hope that in the last days of Judah and Jerusalem, so there was still hope for those people. But there are no last days in the book of Revelation, they are the last days of Judah and Jerusalem. That's a hard thing for folks to swallow, but I think we can document that. So the we have defined harlot then as as one who uses their natural and external endowments. That means they use what is naturally theirs as a woman in this case, adding to it the external endowments that make them advertise their wares. And it's for the purpose of manipulating others for their own personal advantage. Talked about Drunk with wine and the fornication, isn't that kind of saying they left their first love, their God? And that's what Hosea writes about. Right. That's what they did. Worshiping other idols and mingling with the people they shouldn't be. That's right. When they entered the promised land, you know, they mingled with, they were supposed to play the more love, they mingled with it. And that's what happened there, and that's what happened in 70 AD. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Mike? Good point. In relationship to the covenant, that's right. right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily a physical thing here. It's, right. it's how God was looking at it from their perspective in relationship. Good point. So how how does modern 
just before we we go on to some other text here, um, how how does modern religion see old Jerusalem? The Jerusalem of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. That Jerusalem. How does modern religion see that Jerusalem? Well, when we talk about that Jerusalem, I think you're right. Now, how how does God see the Jerusalem of Judea in Revelation time? They're even worse because of why? Because of what they are responsible for regarding Christ and his church. They rejected the Messiah. What they did to the Messiah. The anointed one of God came. And how, so the book of Revelation is telling us how God sees the Jerusalem of Judea in 70 AD up to that point. And this is what we're seeing the judgment of. Now, in verse 4, and we've got more things to say here, but the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations. I think we defined that last week. Does anybody know offhand? How we define that seems to me um, um, I don't see it right offhand, but I, I, I did a, a study on abominations, and I, I think it was in last week's notes. <clears throat> but it really it really means the the condition of regurgitated food. That's not a pleasant thought. I don't know about you, but never really been attracted to regurg- food that's been regurgitated. <laughs> but that's an abomination, you know. So you're talking about something that is so bad it makes God sick to his stomach. Yep. So you have the woman clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of niceties such as abominations, all the unclean things of her immorality. Now, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and get a contrast here between how Paul defines a Christian woman as compared to this woman. First Peter, uh, first, uh, what I say, first, uh, first Timothy two. I'm skipping around a little bit too much. This is the character portrait. This is the character portrait. And now I'm trying to, I'm trying to hurt some feelings. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I can't I wait. Got, I got a couple of tomatoes over here. You do. Oh, right. We, we're into tomatoes. First Timothy chapter two. 
Verse 9. Likewise. Oh, he's got it on the board. Likewise. The, the I want isn't there. But if it is there, I mean, if it were there and it doesn't make any difference, he is speaking as an apostle, one who had a select access into the thinking of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want women to adorn themselves in keeping with the society in which they live. No? Oh, wait, wait. Somebody going to argue with me on that? Yes. Good. Okay. See, I like that. I, I like, you know, you got to stop me. I, I, want, I want women to adorn themselves, and I wish that I want wasn't there. It doesn't make any difference what Paul wants. But he's speaking the thinking of God. Women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly. Now, the word modest doesn't mean what you think it means. The word modest means, in the bottom line, to dress appropriately for what it is you're doing. So, if you're playing tennis, you don't wear a long skirt. That's immodest. It doesn't fit your activity. Modest means that you're dressing in keeping with your activity or what it is that you're doing. There are some activities that we don't participate in because they require a clothing that just isn't fitting for the Christian mind. There are those conditions, right? Anybody disagree with that? But modestly means all of those things are, that are acceptable activities and don't allow you or don't require you to be um, shamefully attired, then modesty fits in, and it means to be appropriate for the occasion. That's a simple term. And we need to learn, our, our girls need to know that, the boys need to know that, you dress appropriately for where you are. It's not appropriate to come to the Sunday morning service in rags. And I know I don't get on people who do, but it's really not appropriate. And people need time, but they need to learn that that is a sacred time. Well, I like the pause. Isn't it? So we should be dressed appropriately for being in a sacred environment at a sacred time with sacred people. And we should express that. I don't mean to go off the beat, and I'm not going to judge anybody on that one way or the other, but it's a consciousness that we need to develop that I, I'm going to the assembly and I, I want to be appropriately attired for the assembly that I'm going to. And it would be different than I, if I were going to a ball game. And I, nothing wrong with going to a ball game. But when I'm going to the assembly, 
You don't agree with that, do you? I agree with it. You do? Trying to get some opposition going here. But let's go on. Huh? What about uh, the tires that teenagers wear now? If you walk through the store, all you see is short shorts, and that's not appropriate. I don't care if you think it is the custom now. It might be appropriate in their own home, but yeah. in public? I know. See? I went shopping with her and bought her. You have nothing to They're in modest. That's the culture. Very good, Gina. I like you thinking right on. So I want them to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Now, you notice he doesn't define what that is because he's taking into account that there are many cultural differences that are neither right nor wrong in themselves. But any culture that violates this then has to deal with it. Modestly and discreetly. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. That's not to be their emphasis, but rather by means of good works. Now, you see, if you take this to the literal extreme, that means that the only thing they need to wear is good works. And that's pretty scanty with some folks. But tell me where they are and I'll go. <laughs> no, you know, he's, he's asking us here by the very terms that he's using to use some common sense. As is proper for women making a claim to godliness, let the emphasis be, is what I'm thinking the overall meaning here is, let the emphasis be what it is you're doing not as to how you're dressed. Don't make that your emphasis in life. Let's go to another. Uh, is that verse 10? Yeah, let's go on. Let's go to, let's go to 1 Peter and get another, another look at this. Now, there's a lot more there, but it's, you know, we're, we're, look, we're limiting, limiting our discussion to primarily getting that God's people in the New Testament have a vision of dress. And particularly, he addresses women that way because women seem in that area to have the biggest problem. That's not always the case, but there are other things that men have their problems in that we kind of ignore. But this is a problem that is characteristically feminine. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, <clears throat> he, we get the balance factor. Your adornment, in 1 Peter 3, verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external. The braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or the putting on of dresses. Does he mean that by that you can't wear any gold jewelry? No. Because if you were, then you couldn't put on a dress. And there are some churches that I've been to 
who say you cannot wear gold. And if you have gold on your glasses, you've got to take them off, and that goes for men too. can't have any gold, you know, pieces. Mine are silver. <laughs> I didn't know for sure. <laughs> but I have some gold ones out of the truck. If it will offend anybody, I'll go get them. But in the Old Testament, all Oh, I'm going to get there. You got it. But I'm going to go there in just a moment. We're going to go back and read that. And we're going to, it's going to be interesting. And, and you know, we're, going out, we're getting out of time. We haven't even got caught up to where we were last week. But, but you know, I'm not going to worry about it. <clears throat> so in verse, what did I say, verse First uh, Peter, where were we? First Peter 3, 3 and 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart. Here again, he's talking about your emphasis. You can't just go out with who you are without having yourself adorned in some way. It's just that the emphasis is not to be on what your external appearance is. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And the word quiet doesn't mean... What does the word quiet mean? Not argumentative. It means having a solidity of spirit. Being solid. Being strong. Quiet means that you've got what it takes to get through a storm without getting tossed to and fro. That's the kind of a spirit that the women are to have. That's tough, but see, it's precious in the sight of God. That's precious in the sight of God. And what? And for men too. Oh, yeah. And that's a, that's addressed in other places, yeah. But now, not nowadays. No. Now let's let's go back, and let's go back to Ezekiel, because I want I got to get to Kaipo, and we're almost out of time. <clears throat> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, chapter sixteen. <clears throat> I'm still talking in a barrel. I can't tell whether I'm screaming or whispering. So I don't have a... Uh, chapter 16, and let's start with verse 10. <clears throat> so, because we, we're, what we're looking at in verse 4 is the woman that he is describing his people as looking like as compared with how we would view people under the New Covenant. But look at even at, as it was under the Old Covenant. And that's where we're going now in Ezekiel. I wanted to give you the New Testament first. Because here, in our text, in Revelation, Jerusalem is portrayed in the attire as a harlot. Now let's go back and see how God looked at this thing in chapter 16 and verse 10. Neil, I don't know whether I can get these pages or not. There we go. <clears throat> I clothed you 
You see, this is, he's talking here to Jerusalem about her abominations in chapter 16, verse 2. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Talking about the abominations of whom? Jerusalem. The same as Revelation is addressing Jerusalem because she as here were covenant people. So in verse 10, I, will, I also clothed you with... Now, here, God is saying to them, I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of pur- uh, porpoise skin on your feet. That's classy. And I, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. So initially here, does God have anything wrong with fine-looking, fine-dressed women? No. I adorn you, in verse 11, with ornaments. Put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. Who did that? God did it. There were no plain Janes. I also put a ring in your nostril. That's always attractive to me, yeah? I, that's one thing I, you know, the only thing I ever had a, we used to have pigs. We always put a ring in their nostril so they wouldn't dig, get out. That's what I see, what, what I think when I see rings in a nose. <laughs> the personification of a hog. <laughs> that's not really nice, is it? All right, I put ring in your nostril, but that was classy. See, that's a cultural thing. That was classy. Earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Verse 13, thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered with cloth. Um, and, uh, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Now he's speaking, as I believe here, to the people as a whole. He's, I don't know that he's speaking gene- uh, um, um, feminine or masculine, gender-wise. Then your fame went forth from the nations on account of your beauty. How were they made popular? By their, by their beauty. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you all. You as plural. Declares the Lord God. So because of what I have done to you, what I did to you was perfect, and it, it brought attention from all the nations. But now verse 15 we get a transition, folks. So if you're feeling puffed up, we're going to shave. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty. But you trusted in your beauty. As I said, I don't believe here that he is talking about gender. I think he's talking about the people as a whole. You see that? 
You trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. Have we ever heard that word harlot before? Has it related to Jerusalem? Yeah, I told you, you know, this, this is specifically related to Jerusalem. And so the New Testament here in the book of Revelation is dealing with Jerusalem and identifying them as a harlot. No need to call Babylon that. They weren't, they weren't in a covenant. You can't be a harlot under, with no covenant, no law. You trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerbyer who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. Same thing that when Jerusalem was scattered abroad over the waters, the sea of Gentiles, and they sat upon them, they did that very thing after the day of Pentecost. Verse 17, You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. See the language, how it's brought forth in Revelation chapter 17. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my license before them. Verse 19, and my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, which, with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. And we dealt with those things last week. Verse 30, how languishing is your heart, says, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. He's describing Jerusalem as it was in captivity, and now John is seeing a vision where God is describing his people with the very same language. Father, we are thankful that we can be together tonight it's just wonderful to have the, the spirit of agreement, the information that is shared. We are so thankful for it. Our commitment to you, Father, is to keep our hearts in tune with you and with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.